This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to the people who lived around Mesa Verde hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. In this season, we're addressing some of the most common questions that visitors have at Mesa Verde National Park. And in this final episode of season four, we're gonna talk about the myth that first drew explorers, archeologists, and tourists to these desert canyons just a few centuries ago. Where did the Mesa Verde people go? Did they vanish without a trace? Their pottery, textiles, tools, and even food left behind inside their cliffside homes. One of the things that the Mesa Verde region and the Pueblo occupation there is probably most well known for is that by the end of the 1200s, Pueblo people moved on. This is Donna Glowacki. My name is Donna Glowacki, and I am an archaeologist, and I am also an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame in the Anthropology Department. If you've listened to previous episodes this season, you'll likely remember Donna's voice. She has done extensive archaeological work in the Mesa Verde region, both within the park and in the valleys below. They didn't abandon the Mesa Verde region, but they, they did leave. And trying to understand how that kind of migration and depopulation of the region could happen at such a large scale is a really, really interesting and challenging question to address because there are different processes and conditions that are, are happening. Even though the ancestral Pueblo people left the region, just as Donna said, they did not abandon it. In fact, their descendants still feel a strong connection to this landscape and to the villages found throughout it. It's a connection so strong that they believe that these are still living and occupied villages, still home to their ancestors. Back in episode one of this season, we talked about how in modern times, we tend to rely heavily on ways of knowing things or ways of understanding things that have been passed down by European descendant people. This includes our understanding of science and history, archaeology and anthropology. However, many indigenous people around the world, such as those in the American Southwest, rely on their own oral histories and oral traditions, which have been passed down from generation to generation. Again, these oral histories and traditions are just as valid as the archaeological record. And so in this episode, we'll be looking not only at what archaeology tells us about this migration out of Mesa Verde, but also what the oral histories of the descendants tell us about this time in the past. Much like in the previous episode, where we talked about the motivations for moving down into the alcoves to build the cliff dwellings, the movement ultimately out of the Mesa Verde region would have been complex, happening for a multitude of reasons. So it seems like all of a sudden everybody just left. And that's not exactly true, even though in some ways it could be thought of that way. But people were always moving. By this, Donna means that migration and population movement is very integral to what we might refer to as ancestral Pueblo culture. Although, remember this region was multicultural, with many language groups and clan groups living across these various villages. And they were often moving over large, large areas and settling in different places. People were always migrating and leaving and, you know, began leaving the region much earlier than one might think. 
whenever there was some sort of say climatic issue or or drought or any sort of problems that hit a community i think that a village slash community could disperse this is patrick cruz my name is patrick cruz and i'm a archaeology graduate student at the university of colorado i'm also a uh, okiawinge community member one of the pueblos here in new mexico prior to going back to school for archaeology Patrick has had a career in museums and has always been interested in anthropology, indigenous cultures, and the Southwest. And as Patrick said, he is Okeawinge, which is one of the six pueblos in New Mexico that belong to the Tewa Cultural, Ethnic, and Language Group. And as Donna mentioned before, the Tewa people and their ancestors have a history of migration and moving around on the landscape. One of the strategies they had for dealing with problems such as drought and maybe poor farming conditions is that people could leave the community, leave the village, and move out onto the landscape or maybe move to another village that was maybe doing better than their home village. And so, you know, I think that we always think about a village and a community as being this unit that didn't really interact with other units. And I, I don't think that's the way to think about these communities at the time. I think that people could come and go as they wanted and move to other communities whenever they wanted to. But whenever there was some sort of, say, climatic problems or issues with the farming, communities could shrink as they needed to and people moving out, out elsewhere. And then as things got better back at the home community or home village, people could come back and the population could swell. And so we could see evidence of a lot of population movement happening throughout the entire time Pueblo people lived in the Mesa Verde region. And it's just a matter of how intense was that movement and how frequent was that movement. So now that we have some of this basic cultural groundwork established, Let's look at why the people of Mesa Verde might have left their homeland. As we've said before, the reasons are likely as complex and varied as the individuals who made them. Trying to understand what happened at the end of the 1200s is so complicated, and what was happening for people in their lived experience varied from person to person, from family to family, from village to village. Depending on where you lived, you had slightly differing circumstances and social dynamics that were at play that caused people to leave. So there's no like one reason why Pueblo people left the region, but it's sort of this convergence of all these different factors and how it played out for them in their own lives and their lived experience that ultimately led to them deciding to leave. But in the past, there was kind of this one predominant theory. The primary theory that has been around forever has been drought. This is Jill Blumenthal. I am Jill Blumenthal, and I am the Education Coordinator and Volunteer Program Manager at Mesa Verde National Park. You'll likely remember Jill's voice from previous episodes this season as well. Most of the time you'll hear a fairly simple explanation is that there was a big drought and everybody left. And that's true. <laughs> there was a big drought and everybody did leave. But cause and effect is something kind of different from that. So there is a well-documented drought that happened between 1276 and 1299. And that is often cited as the reason that people moved away from the region. But it does look like some people were beginning to move away earlier than that. So we do see some evidence that some villages were being depopulated by, say, the mid-1200s. So clearly they were not leaving because of the drought that didn't happen until 30 years later. 
So that leads to some of the other ideas about the final migration. If we look closely at the archaeological record and the state of the environment, the landscape at the time, just like we did when theorizing why people decided to build the cliff dwellings, we can see a few significant changes occurring during this time period. There's some evidence that cooler temperatures, which would have impacted corn production. There's also evidence that resource depletion would have played a role. The resources that archaeologists most commonly refer to here are wood, so, you know, tree cutting, and also large game, so basically deer. And I think that resource depletion certainly would have factored in. It would be hard to continue to heat your homes and build your homes and fire your pottery if your wood resources were depleted. And then it appears that there was less large game that was being hunted and consumed because there are fewer deer bones in midden areas in refuge during that late time period. At the same time, those refuse areas, called middens, also tell us that the people were relying on a different food source for protein. It looks like people were increasingly relying on turkeys as a protein source. These turkeys were ones that had been domesticated over generations and were also used for other resources, such as turkey feather blankets. And that they were feeding corn to their turkeys. So if you started to have problems with corn production, either from cold temperatures or from drought, and you were feeding corn to your turkeys as your primary protein source, that would, that would have had an impact too. Along with these environmental factors, both oral histories and the archeological record suggest that there were big social, political, and religious changes happening here in the 1200s. These type of really large-scale societal changes do often prompt migrations. And those societal changes made living in this region perhaps no longer sustainable. In episodes two and three of this season, we talked about how across the region in the 1200s, there were several large villages on the Mesa Tops, such as Farview Sites up at Mesa Verde. But for the most part, people were still living in smaller villages spread across the landscape. And then... Both on Mesa Verde and in the surrounding valleys, we see people consolidating, or archaeologists will sometimes say aggregating, into these quite large villages in the late 1200s. And so the reasons for that are not fully clear, but there were societal reasons that people were deciding to live in these pretty tightly packed communities. And it's possible that those communities just simply were not sustainable for the long term, especially when that final drought did hit. Remember what Patrick told us about this kind of cultural ability for the people to spread out and coalesce on the landscape in order to deal with environmental changes like these? With the Mesa Verde area, I think that this would have been a strategy that they could have used in previous droughts. And I think that it would have been one that they could have used in this last drought that they faced. The only problem, I think, is that population shifting from the west and basically people moving in from the west areas of Mesa Verde into central Mesa Verde region and filling up the landscape. So this strategy that people had used throughout the past to come together when they needed to pool resources and then spread out when the population was perhaps too high wasn't able to work this time because it required that the people can move out onto the landscape into unoccupied areas. 
So I think that's what makes this a little bit different, this last drought a little bit different. And it's not necessarily the drought itself, but it's the population explosion that took place in the central Mesa Verde area with more villages and communities getting really, really big and essentially losing that safety net that, that people would have otherwise have been able to deal with this climatic problem. And all this leads to social problems and violence. So it could be that the drought may have kicked off maybe this population shift, which in a sense then created the social problems, which would have created then social rifts within communities. So it may be a domino effect to think about it in that way. Because we have to remember, this definitely wasn't the first drought they had faced. I mean, it was difficult with the drought, but there were also good years that came after the drought periods. And they did try to stay after the mid-1100s drought. And so in some ways, they could have supported themselves and, and stayed at Mesa Verde, but they chose to leave. And so there had to be something very different about what happened by the end of the 1200s because they no longer wanted to stay there. And moving on became necessary. And so what archaeologists believe was happening socially and politically across the region was sort of two things. There was a push and there was a pull. The push was everything we've been talking about. The drought, the deforestation, the effects of these things on food resources, and the stress of increased population on all of these things. And then there's also the pull factors. Part of that has to do with what was going on in the region, of course, with the different droughts and the violence that was happening. But the other part of that is also what was happening elsewhere in the Southwest. If you've listened to season three, you'll remember that there were these extensive trade routes all across the Southwest, all the way to the Pacific coast and down into present-day Mexico. And these trade routes had existed for thousands of years, many generations. So the people within the Mesa Verde region would have had friendships, relationships, and even family bonds with people to the South. I do think that if, if populations are gonna move, they're not gonna move somewhere blindly. They're going to move to somewhere that is familiar with them and somewhere that if there's people already there, they're friendly. So there were other things that were drawing them to move farther south. And some of that also involved sort of how society was changing. And a lot of the changes that were happening by the late 1200s and early 1300s was this sort of movement towards much larger villages that were oriented around a central plaza. And it was a different settlement layout than they had been living in. And those kinds of changes were really happening south of the Mesa Verde region and were attractive for them to be a part of. With population estimates for the Mesa Verde region ranging from perhaps 15,000 all the way up to 30,000 people in the 1200s, it made me ponder what this migration would have looked like. Was it sort of like a mass exodus? It's really hard to know exactly how everything unfolded, especially since there were so many different perceptions and experiences that people and villages were having. And because of that, there's diversity in how large of a group people may have traveled with when, when they left. In some cases, people may have made the decision to move on as an individual. Something happened interpersonally, and they decide that they had to move on. So in some cases, it's just individuals moving. In other cases, maybe an entire family moves together, or parts of families would move to new locations. 
And then in other contexts, there may have been multiple families traveling together. It's also likely that an entire village might have moved together. But all of those different scales were were happening at the same time. So then when you're trying to think about what, what, what does that mean for, you know, interpreting archaeological sites and how people might have been making those moves, it's really challenging. And I think oftentimes it's really tempting to, you know, say, well, they moved from this spot to this spot in the northern Rio Grande, for example. But the reality was is that probably people moved to a new area but that they had multiple stops along the way before they may have ended up at the place that they stayed at for the longest. So I think it's you know really important to keep that in mind, that it's not like there was a pipeline between certain places, but it was this sort of unfolding occurrence that had a lot of different routes and stops that were involved. So it's looking like this movement was far from a mass exodus. In some cases, it was just individuals moving on. In other cases, it was a family moving together, or perhaps multiple families. And in other cases, it may have been an entire village or a clan making the move together. We also see that it wasn't a direct pipeline of people moving from their village in the Mesa Verde region to their final new home. There were many stops along the way, and movement along various routes. We also know that people didn't leave all at the same time. This movement or migration took place over more than a century. By the mid-1100s, movement around and out of the region had already begun. And as we mentioned earlier, social and political changes and stressors throughout the region likely had a big impact on all the decisions to leave. You know, part of the migrations from the Mesa Verde region are about really changing the organization of society. And kind of transitioning from a a structure that was a lot more hierarchically oriented to one that was much more about the collective and much more about, uh, about the village as being important. This hierarchical structure would likely have been similar to or perhaps even modeled after that of Chaco Canyon and Aztec, two very large and influential cultural centers located to the south of Mesa Verde. I think the other thing to think about is that the question of who was leaving first I think that if you had a situation in the Mesa Verde region where there was some sort of class struggle in a sense going on and you had people that were invested in staying, I think those people would have also been those people that had more more power, more authority behind them. And so I think that those that would have left first would have been more likely to not have access to those kinds of resources that power gains those populations. So they're the ones that are least tied to staying to with those communities. So they're the first ones to, to probably have left. And in one way you can think about as as people start to leave and move away from those those big villages in Mesa Verde, I think that those that were in power and in, in control of those villages, I think that their power was also invested in maintaining those villages. And so what you end up having then is that as people are leaving and as those villages are essentially disintegrating, that there might have been, in a sense, an attempt to revitalize or become more Mesa Verdean in your traits and to emphasize those communities as being the correct way of being or trying to to essentially convince people that it would be better to stay and leave. 
But eventually, those people, those populations where people were in charge, would eventually have to be faced with the final question of do they leave as well or not? Because it, basically, it almost becomes like a flood. And once populations are flooding out, there's no stopping it. So it's either they stay or they, they join in and, and go. What I think happened at the end of the 1200s is that the remaining Pueblo population just had to leave at the end of the 1270s because too many other people had moved on and they weren't able to maintain the kinds of connections and village organizations that they wanted to and and things were, you know, still getting really difficult. And what happened in the 1270s was a very difficult time and it was reminiscent of what happened not that long prior to it. You know, the uh, end of the 1100s would have been, you know, part of social memory and, and part of what was getting passed from generation to generation. And, you know, that sort of was factored into wanting to leave and move to a new area because it really just wasn't working for them in the way that they wanted it. And so it's almost like a refugee kind of scenario where you just have a place where you had all these different communities and then you basically have people from all of those communities leaving a uh, little here, little there, from a trickle to a flood. And so you're, you're really getting this like flow of, of people from different communities coming together and coming down as mixed populations. And so when they get to their destination, their new communities are also going to be mixed up with with descendants from multiple Mesa Verde communities having coalesced into these single, say, Rio Grande villages. So, where exactly did the people of Mesa Verde go? When they left the Mesa Verde region, you know, there's multiple pathways that people took. From both the archaeological record and oral histories, the movement from Mesa Verde to where the people are today like we said, wasn't a point A to point B sort of movement. So there are communities that were built and developed and depopulated in the 14 and 15 and 1600s. And those communities are primarily located in New Mexico and in Arizona. So I think it's you know really important to keep that in mind that it's not like there was a pipeline between certain places, but it was this sort of unfolding occurrence that had a lot of different routes and stops that were involved. And when you think of the Mesa Verde region, I also think of parts of southeast Utah as, as part of that as well. So depending on where people live, they might have gone directly south of where they were into Arizona and New Mexico. And ultimately, they ended up in the areas in and around where the Pueblos are today. When the Spanish first arrived in the southwest in the mid-1500s, there were about 300 different Mesa Verde descendant communities living in New Mexico and Arizona. Due to the impact of the Spanish today, there are 21. These are the Hopi who live on the first, second, and third mesas of the Hopi lands in Arizona. The Zuni who live in western New Mexico. The Caray-speaking pueblos of Cochiti, San Felipe, Kewa or Santa Domingo, Santa Ana, Acoma, Laguna, and Zia located along the Rio Grande in central New Mexico the Tiwa-speaking pueblos of Taos, Picaris, Isleta, and Sandia, also along the Rio Grande, as well as the pueblo of Isleta del Sur in Texas. The Tewa-speaking pueblos of Nambe, Poaque, San Ildefonso, Okeawinge, Santa Clara, and Tezuki, also along the Rio Grande, 
as well as one community that lives on the first mesa at Hopi. And finally, the Toa-speaking pueblo of Jemez, also along the Rio Grande in central New Mexico. Even though the people of Mesa Verde moved on from the area over 700 years ago, the stories of their long histories there remain alive in oral traditions today. This is coming from the third Mesa information from Oraivi, what we call Oraivi knowledge, the mother village of third Mesa. This is Stuart. You'll remember his voice from previous episodes this season, and he's Hopi. My name is Stuart B. Koyamtua. My village is Orpella, located on 3rd Mesa, Arizona. And Stuart was gracious enough to share some of the place names that the Hopi have passed down for generations for locations at Mesa Verde. So there's really two names for the area. One is called Tautoika, which is the place of the song. And then there's one specifically place that is, is mentioned in, in our migration tradition or stories, and that's Salapa, which means um, the place with the Douglas fir going, or there's a spring with a Douglas fir growing near it. So that's what it really translates into Salapa. Salavi is Douglas fir and Bahu is spring. So that's a combination of Douglas fir spring. So I think at Mesa Verde, that will be Spruce Tree House that um, is identified in our, our oral history. So Tautoika is the, the region, the place of the songs. And there's one place within Tautoika called Salapa which means uh, Douglas first spring place, I guess. You know, every Pueblo has a name for, for Mesa Verde to their, you know, traditional oral, oral histories. This is TJ. You may remember her voice from previous episodes this season as well. My name is Thelma Jean Atsi. I go by TJ Atsi, and I'm a former park ranger at Mesa Verde National Park. I am a descendant from the ancient people who used to live there. I am Laguna Pueblo. Being Laguna, TJ speaks the Carey's language. And just like Stuart shared, there are names for the villages of Mesa Verde in the Carey's language too. And I know listening to some of just Laguna, for example, where we came from and, and places, talking to my dad and you know some of the other relatives, they're naming places here at Mesa Verde which they're talking about Spruce Tree House, they're talking about other places that it's got to be Mesa Verde. Where, you know, where else could it be just by their description? So it just reinforces that we are from, you know, we are from this area. I couldn't think of in my in my language or how to say it, but I know that Mesa Verde has been described as the the place of little brown people. Now, one of my aunt, my aunts told me that because they were, you know, the, you know, the uh, Mesa Verdeans were small in stature. And of course, they were little brown people. So she said that's the place where the little brown people live. But I don't know how to say it in, in Laguna. And the other thing, uh, the other thing was the people who lived up high. So that was another, that was another description of Mesa Verde. And that's how we describe the people who are from here. They came, they came from up high, or they lived up high.
So if there are 21 different tribes living just a few hundred miles away from Mesa Verde, why, for so many years, was there a myth that the people had vanished without a trace? I don't know for certain, but to be perfectly honest, I my sense is that there's a pretty strong element of racism and colonialism in that myth. It's actually a myth that's pretty much common to the entire United States, that there was there was sort of this vast landscape without anyone really living here except for a few stray native people, and it was just kind of here for the taking. And, and it was taken by European conquest. Whether or not there was malicious intent behind this myth, it was perpetuated for decades. People sort of like to have these mysteries. People enjoy a good mystery. And so it might have been in some of the early 20th century popular writing, like the idea of the, the vanishing Anasazi. I, I don't know for sure. I do know that Pueblo people have, have always known their history. And I think that since a lot of it was, a lot of that history was held in oral tradition rather than being written down, it might have been easier to discount that history. And it's not that the early archaeologists didn't know that the descendant communities were living just farther south. It's, it's interesting to note that a lot of early archaeologists like Jesse Walter Fuchs clearly understood the connection between ancestral sites and contemporary Pueblo people. He was very clear about that. He frequently referred to contemporary Pueblo religious beliefs or structures or just everything. It was very clear to him that there was a connection. There was no mystery at all. Now, this doesn't mean that coming across these stunning stone villages nestled in the cliffsides shouldn't have inspired some intrigue among the first Europeans to see them. You know, the fact that people were not still living on the mesa or in the cliffs at the time that European people showed up and that there so clearly had been a large and thriving civilization there did lead to some questions, of course. But when I say there was an element of racism or colonialism, I think it also just simply means that people were not really listening to Pueblo people when asking about their history. And what's interesting is that just as we talked about in the first episode of this season, Migration is a shared human experience. Humans have migrated for thousands and thousands of years, across continents and oceans, using rafts, boats, trains, and cars. However, we don't tend to talk about contemporary migrations <laughs> in the same way. We don't talk about Anglo people vanishing from the face of the earth just because they migrate from one place to the other, right? I mean, we, we do talk about ghost towns in the West, for example, but we don't say that just because those people left that town that they vanished without a trace. We just don't talk about it in the same language. We talk about people moving away for other better economic opportunities. While myths such as this one about the vanishing people of Mesa Verde may seem like harmless stories we sometimes tell about the past, they can have real unintended consequences on their descendants, on the landscape, and our collective understanding of human cultural history. Acknowledging and working to understand the diverse groups of people who have come from Mesa Verde is crucial to understanding Mesa Verde itself. Whether you're currently visiting Mesa Verde National Park, you're currently planning a visit, or you hope to visit someday in the future, remember, this is a sacred place. Please, always visit with respect. 
we as present-day contemporary Pueblo people still feel that connection, still feel like home when you walk into a dwelling, when you're even on top of the mesa, you're walking on sacred ground. The minute, the minute you go past that entrance station, you are on sacred land and the spirit is alive and kicking and you know you're just awestruck by everything you see from the plants and the animals if you see them to point lookout to look across get you know weather hill mesa and then when you get to sun temple and see that and when you see cliff palace from the overlook you still get the chills you still get excited no matter how many times because it's a different experience every time you go through and that's why we as modern day Pueblo people have to return home we have to get re-energized we have to be able to come back to the basics leave the chaos of our lives leave the chaos of the world leave the chaos of everything and go back to get centered Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and funded by the Mesa Verde Museum Association with a matching grant from the National Park Service. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, and our music is by David Morella. Whether you're currently visiting Mesa Verde National Park, planning to visit, or simply wanting to learn more about this very special place, check out the Mesa Top Loop audio tour put together by Mesa Verde National Park to hear more about the different periods of life on the landscape at Mesa Verde. Download or stream this multi-part tour now on Apple Podcasts or visit nps.gov forward slash M-E-V-E to find a transcript. You can also find that link on our website, mesaverdevoices.org, as well as links to additional resources for this episode. Special thanks to Jonathan Till, Mark Varian, Spencer Burke, Chris McAllister, Sam Dewey, Scott Orman, and Lyle Belenqua for your help in research for this episode and throughout the season. And thank you to TJ Atsi, Stuart B. Koyamtiwa, Patrick Cruz, Donna Glowacki, Jill Blumenthal, Chris McAllister, and Jesse Toon for sharing your insights with us. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.